0: Chapter 11, Part 2 of Haunted London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Olson Vitak, Los Angeles. Haunted London by Walter Thornbury. Chapter 11, Part 2 Benjamin Franklin, when first in England, worked at the printing office of Mr. Watts in Little Wild Street, after being employed for twelve months at one Palmer's in Bartholomew Close. He lodged close by in Duke Street, opposite the Roman Catholic chapel, with a widow, to whom he paid three and sixpence weekly. His landlady, was a clergyman's daughter who had married a catholic and abjured protestantism she and franklin were much together as he kept good hours and she was lame and almost confined to her room their frugal supper often consisted of nothing but half an anchovy a small slice of bread and butter each and half a pint of ale between them on Franklin proposing to leave for cheaper lodgings, she consented to let him retain his room at two shillings a week. In the attic of the house lived a voluntary nun. She was a lady who early in life had been sent to the continent for her health, but unable to bear the climate, had returned home to live in seclusion on twelve pounds a year, devoting the rest of her income to charity and subsisting, healthy and cheerful, on nothing but water gruel. Her presence was thought a blessing to the house, and several tenants in succession had charged her no rent. She permitted the occasional visits of Franklin and his landlady, and the brave American lad, while he pitied her superstition, felt confirmed in his frugality by her example during his first weeks with mr watts franklin worked as a pressman drinking only water while his companions had their five pints of porter daily the water american as he was called was however stronger than his colleagues and tried to persuade some of them that strong beer was not necessary for strong work his argument was that bread contained more materials of strength than beer, and that it was only corn in the beer that produced the strength in the liquid. Born to be a reformer, Franklin persuaded the chapel to alter some of their laws. He resisted impositions and conciliated the respect of his fellows. He worked as a pressman, as he had done in America, for the sake of the exercise he used he tells us to carry up and down stairs with one hand a large form of type while the other fifty men required both hands to do the same work franklin's fellow pressmen drank every day a pint of beer before breakfast a pint with bread and cheese for breakfast a pint between breakfast and dinner one at dinner one again at six in the afternoon and another after his day's work and all this he declared to be necessary to give him strength for the press this custom said the king of common sense seemed to me abominable franklin however failed to make a convert of this man and he went on paying his four or five shillings a week for the cursed beverage destined probably poor devil to remain all his life in a state of voluntary wretchedness serfdom and poverty a few of the men consented to follow franklin's example and renouncing beer and cheese to take for breakfast a basin of warm gruel with butter toast and nutmeg this did not cost more than a pint of beer namely three halfpence and at the same time was more nourishing and kept the head clearer those who gorged themselves with beer would sometimes run up a score and come to the water american for credit their light being out franklin attended at the great stone table every saturday evening to take up the little debts which sometimes amounted to thirty shillings a week this circumstance says franklin in his autobiography added to the reputation of my being a tolerable gabber or in other words skilful in the art of burlesque kept up my importance in the chapel i had besides recommended myself to the esteem of my master by my assiduous application to business never observing saint monday my extraordinary quickness in composing always procured me such work as was most urgent and which is commonly best paid and thus my time passed away in a very pleasant manner franklin like a truly great man was quietly proud of the humble origin from which he had risen and when he came to england as the agent and ambassador of massachusetts he paid a visit to his workroom in Wild Street, and going to his old friend the press, said to the two workmen busy at it Come, my friends, we will drink together. It is now forty years since I worked like you at this very press as a journeyman printer. Wild House stood on the site of Little Wild Street. The Duchess of Ormond was living there in 1655. On the day when King James the Second escaped from London, the mob grew unruly and assembled in great force to pull down houses where either mass was set or priests lodged. Don Pietro Ronguillo, the Spanish ambassador who lived at Wild House and whom Evelyn mentions as having received him with extraordinary civility march twenty sixth sixteen eighty one had not thought it necessary to ask for soldiers though the rich roman catholics had sent him their money and plate as to a sanctuary and the plate of the chapel royal was also in his care but the house was sacked without mercy his noble library perished in the flames the chapel was demolished the pictures rich beds and furniture were destroyed the poor Spaniard making his escape by a back door. His only comfort was that the sacred host in his chapel was rescued. In 1780, another savage and thievish Protestant mob, under Lord George Gordon, assembled in St. George's Fields to petition Parliament against the Test Act, which relieved Roman Catholics from many vexatious penalties and unjust disabilities on condition of their taking their oaths of allegiance and disbelief in the infamous doctrines of the Jesuits. The mob assembled on the 2nd of June, and jostled and insulted the peers, going to the House of Lords, the same evening the people demolished the greater part of the Roman Catholic chapel in Duke Street. On Monday they stripped the house and shop of Mr. Maberly of Little Queen Street, who had been a witness at the trial of some rioters. On Tuesday they passed through Longacre and burnt Newgate, releasing three hundred prisoners. And the same day destroyed the house of justice cox in great queen street in these street riots seventy-two private houses and four public jails were burnt and more than four hundred rioters perished at the above-named chapel Nolikens, the eminent sculptor was baptized in 1737 the present chapel is much resorted to on sundays by the irish poor and foreigners who live about Drury lane nicholas stone the great monumental sculptor lived in long acre in sixteen nineteen inigo jones began the new banqueting house at whitehall and replaced the one destroyed by fire six months before this master mason was nicholas stone the sculptor of the fine monument to sir francis vere in westminster abbey his pay was four shillings ten d a day stone also designed dr don's splendid monument in st paul's rubillac was a great admirer of the kneeling knight at the northwest corner of Vere's tomb, he used to stand and watch it and say, Hush, hush, he will speak presently. Mr. J.T. Smith seems to think that the Shakespeare monument at Stratford is in this sculptor's manner. Inigo Jones, who had been fined for having borne arms at the siege of Basing House. Joined with Nicholas Stone in burying their money near Inigo's house in Scotland Yard. But as the Parliament encouraged servants to betray such hidden treasures, the partners removed their money and hid it again with their own hands in Lambeth Marsh. Oliver Cromwell, when member for Cambridge, lived from 1637 to 1643 on the south side of Longacre two doors from nicholas stone the sculptor john taylor the water poet an eccentric poetaster kept a public house in phoenix alley now hanover court near longacre he was a thames waterman who had fought at the taking of cadiz and afterwards travelled to germany and scotland as a servant to sir william wade he was then made collector of the wine dues, for the lieutenant of the tower and wrote a life of old par and sixty-three volumes of satire and jingling doggerel, not altogether without vivacity and vigour. He called himself the king's water poet and the queen's waterman and in 1623 wrote a tract called the world runs on wheels a violent attack on the use of coaches i dare truly affirm says the writer that every day in any term especially if the court be at whitehall they do rob us of our livings and carry five hundred and sixty fares daily from us in this quaint pamphlet Taylor gives a humorous account of his once riding in his master's coach from Whitehall to the tower. Before I had been drawn twenty yards, he says, such a tympany of pride puffed me up that I was ready to burst with the wind colic of vain glory. He complains particularly of the streets and lanes being blocked with carriages, especially Blackfriars and Fleet Street, or the Strand, after a mask or play at court, the noise deafening everyone and souring the beer to the injury of the public health. It is Taylor who mentions that William Boonin, a Dutchman, first introduced coaches into England in 1564 and became Queen Elizabeth's coachman it is he says a doubtful question whether the devil brought tobacco into england in a coach or brought a coach in a fog or mist of tobacco nor did taylor rest there for he presented a petition to james i bankside so as to give more work to watermen in the civil war taylor went to oxford and wrote ballads for the king on his return to london he settled in long acre with a mourning crown for a sign but the puritans resenting this emblem he had his own portrait painted instead with this motto there's many a head stands for a sign then gentle reader why not mine taylor was born in fifteen eighty and died in sixteen fifty four and the following epitaph was written on the vain, honest fellow, who was buried at St. Martin's in the fields. Here lies the water poet, Honest John, who rode on the streams of Helicon, where, having many rocks and dangers passed, he at the haven of heaven arrived at last. From 1682 to 1686, John Dryden lived in Longacre, on the north side in a house facing what formerly was rose street his name appears in the rate books as john dryden esq an unusual distinction and the sum he paid to the poor varied from eighteen shillings to one pound it was here he resided when he was beaten one december evening in sixteen seventy nine by three ruffians hired by the earl of rochester and the duchess of portsmouth sir walter scott makes the poet live at the time in gerard street but no part of gerard street was built in sixteen seventy nine rochester had the year before ridiculed dryden as poet squab and believed that dryden had helped mulgrave in ridiculing him in his clumsy essay on satire the best lines of this dull poem are these of fighting sparks fame may her pleasure say but 'tis a bolder thing to run away the world may well forgive him all his ill for every fault does prove his penance still falsely he falls into some dangerous noose and then as meanly labours to get loose a letter from rochester to a friend dated november twenty first in the above year is still extant in which he names dryden as the author of the satire and concludes with the following threat if he dryden falls on me at the blunt which is his very good weapon in wit i will forgive him if you please and leave the repartee to black will with a cudgel dryden offered a reward of fifty pounds for the discovery of the men who cudgeled him depositing the money in the hands of Mr. Blanchard, goldsmith, next door to Temple Bar, but all in vain. The Rose Alley satire, the Rose Alley ambuscade, and the Dryden salutation became established jokes with Dryden's countless enemies. Even Mulgrave himself, in his art of poetry, said of Dryden coldly, Though praised and punished for another's rhymes, his own deserve as great applause sometimes. And in a conceded note, the amateur poet described the libel as one for which Dryden had been unjustly applauded and wounded. But these lines and this note Mulgrave afterwards suppressed. Poor Otway! whom rochester had satirized and who had accused dryden of saying of his don carlos that egad there was not a line in it he would be author of stood up bravely for dryden as an honest satirist in these vigorous verses poets in honor of the truth should write with the same spirit brave men for it fight from any private cause where malice reigns or general peak all blockheads have two brains dryden never took any poetical revenge on rochester and in the prefatory essay to his juvenile he takes credit for that forbearance edward more generally known as ned ward was the landlord of public-houses alternately in moorfields clerkenwell Fulwoods rents and longacre he was born in 1667 and died 1731. He was a high Tory and fond of the society of poets and authors. Attacked in the dunciad, he turned Don Quixote into hudibrastic verse and wrote endless songs, lampoons, coarse, clever satires, and dialogues on matrimony, 1710 the father of Peppy's long-suffering wife, lived in Longacre, and the bustling official describes, with a stultifying exactitude, his horror at a visit which he found himself forced to pay to a house surrounded by taverns. Dr. Arbuthnot, in a letter to Mr. Watkins, gives Bessie Cox a woman in Longacre whom Pryor would have married when her husband died, a detestable character. The infatuated poet left his estate between his old servant, Jonathan Drift, and this woman who boasted that she was the poet's Emma, another Virago, Flanders Jane, being his Chloe. It is said of this careless, pleasant poet that after spending an intellectual evening with Oxford, Bolingbroke, Pope, and Swift in order to unbend, he would smoke a pipe and drink a bottle of ale with a common soldier and his wife in Longacre. Sieber calls the man a butcher. Other writers make him a cobbler or a tavern-keeper, which is more likely. The shameless husband is said to have been proud of the poet's preference for his wife. Pope, who was remorseless at the failings of friends, calls the woman a wretch and said to Spence, Pryor was not a right good man. He used to bury himself for whole days and nights together with this poor mean creature and often drank hard. This person, who perhaps is... Misrepresented, and where there is a doubt, the prisoner at the bar should always have the benefit of it, was the Venus of the poet's verse. To her prior wrote, after Walpole tried to impeach him From public noise and factions strife, from all the busy ills of life, take me my Chloe to thy breast, and lull my wearied soul to rest. For ever in this humble cell, alehouse, let thee and I, me, my fair one, dwell. None enter else but love, and he shall bar the door and keep the key. Pryor was the son of a joiner, and was brought up, as before mentioned, by his uncle, a tavern-keeper at Charing Cross, where the clever waiter's knowledge of Horace led to his being sent to college by the Earl of Dorset abandoning literature he finally became our ambassador to france he died in retirement in 1721 it was in a poor shoemaker's small window in longacre half of it devoted to boots half to pictures that poor starving wilson's fine classical landscapes were exposed often vainly for sale here from his miserable garret in tottenham court road the great painter peevish and soured by neglect would come swearing at his rivals barrett and smith of chichester i can imagine him with his tall burly figure his red face and his enormous nose striding out of the shop thirsting for porter and muttering that if the pictures of Wright of derby had fire his had air yet this great painter whose works are so majestic and glowing so fresh airy broad and harmonious was all but starved the king refused to purchase his kew gardens and the very pawnbrokers grew weary of taking his tivolis and niobes as pledges far preferring violins flat-irons, or telescopes. It was in Longacre that that delightful idyllic painter, Stothard was born in 1755. His father, a Yorkshireman, kept an inn in the street. Sent for his health into Yorkshire, and placed with an old lady who had some choice engravings, he began to draw. The first subject that he ever painted was executed with an oyster shell full of black paint borrowed from the village plumber and glazier. This little man was the father of many a watteau lover and tripping Boccaccio nymph. That genial and graceful artist who illustrated Chaucer, Robinson Crusoe, and the Pilgrim's Progress had the road to fame pointed out to him first by that little black man on the accession of king george i the tories had such sway over the london mobs that the friends of the protestant succession resolved to found cheap tavern clubs in various parts of the city in order that well-affected tradesmen might meet to keep up their spirit of loyalty and serve as focus points of resistance in case of tory tumults Defoe. A staunch Whig describes one of these assemblies in Longacre, which probably suggested the rest. At the Mughouse Club in Longacre about a hundred gentlemen, lawyers, and tradesmen met in a large room at seven o'clock on Wednesday and Saturday evenings in the winter, and broke up soon after ten. A grave old gentleman in his own gray hairs and within a few months of ninety was the president and sat in an armed chair raised some steps above the rest of the company to keep the room in order a harp was played all the time at the lower end of the room and every now and then one of the company rose and entertained the rest with a song nothing was drunk but ale and everyone chalked his score on the table beside him what with the songs and drinking healths from one table to another there was no room for politics or anything that could sour conversation the members of these clubs retired when they pleased as from a coffee-house old sir hans sloane's coach made by john aubrey queen anne's coachmaker in longacre and given to him by her for curing her of a fit of the gout was given by sir hans to his old butler who set up the white horse inn behind chelsea church where it remained for half a century charles Catton, one of the early academicians was originally a coach and sign painter he painted a lion as a sign for his friend a celebrated coachmaker, at that time living in Longacre. A sign painted by Clarkson that hung at the northeast corner of Little Russell Street about 1780 was said to have cost five hundred pounds, and crowds used to collect to look at it. Lord William Russell was led from Holborn into Little Queen Street on his way to the scaffold in Lincoln's Inn Fields as the coach turned into this street lord russell said to tillotson i have often turned to the other hand with great comfort but i now turn to this with greater he referred to southampton house on the opposite side of holborn which he inherited through his brave and good wife the granddaughter of shakespeare's early patron in the year seventeen ninety six Charles Lamb resided with his father, mother, aunt, and sister in lodgings at number 7, Little Queen Street, a house, I believe, removed to make way for the church. Southey describes a call which he made on them there in 1794 or 5. The father had once published a small quarto volume of poetry, of which The Sparrow's Wedding was his favorite and Charles used to delight him by reading this to him when he was in his dotage. In 1797, Lamb published his first verses. His father, the ex-servant and companion of an old bencher in the temple, was sinking into the grave. His mother had lost the use of her limbs, and his sister was employed by day in needlework, and by night in watching her mother. Lamb just twenty-one years old was a clerk in the india house on the twenty-second of september miss lamb who had been deranged some years before by nervous fatigue seized a case-knife while dinner was preparing chased a little girl her apprentice round the room and on her mother calling to her to forbear stabbed her to the heart Lamb arrived only in time to snatch the knife from his sister's hand. He had that morning been to consult a doctor, but had not found him at home. The verdict at the inquest was insanity, and Mary Lamb was sent to a madhouse where she soon recovered her reason. Poor Lamb's father and aunt did not long survive. Not long after... Lamb himself was for six weeks confined in an asylum. There is, Extant, a terrible letter in which he describes rushing from a party of friends who were supping with him soon after the horrible catastrophe and in an agony of regret falling on his knees by his mother's coffin asking forgiveness of heaven for forgetting her so soon. There is no doubt that poor lamb played the sot over his nightly grog. But he had a noble soul, and let us be lenient with such a man. Be to his faults a little blind, and to his virtues very kind. He abandoned her whom he loved, together with all meaner ambitions, and drudged his years away as a poor ignoble clerk, in order to maintain his half crazed sister. For this purpose, true knight that he was, though he never drew sword, he gave all that he had his life. Peace then, peace be to his ashes. End of chapter 11, part 2. Recording by Linda Olson Feitak, Los Angeles.